0: Our text this morning is from Genesis 3 and verses 14 through 24. Just when you thought you had escaped it, it comes back for you. Genesis 3 verses 14 through 34. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread till you return from the ground to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us. You are our only hope, and our only hope to understand these things also is in you. For the natural man does not accept the things of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. That's what the scripture says. They are spiritually discerned. So we ask the help of your Holy Spirit, and we pray, King Jesus. We pray that you would open our eyes and let us see you and let us see ourselves in the pages of your book. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today is the, um, the first Sunday of Advent, the Advent season, and after church we will celebrate together with a meal and uh, the hanging of the greens, which is a time in which we decorate the church and we make it festive and we make it bright to celebrate the season. We're not going to be able to do much up here uh, for the until after the concert because it's apparently going to be jam packed with musicians from all over the place so we'll keep it pretty minimal up here and then afterwards we can bring out the larger things after the concert. The word Advent is an English word that comes from the Latin word adventus, which means an arrival or an appearing. Advent then is the month long anticipation of Christmas during which we celebrate the birth of Christ. Advent is also the season that marks the beginning of the year on the church calendar. And some of you probably know that there is a calendar of the church year, which is used by some churches and ignored by others. I don't know how it's been around here for the whole history. But uh, if you know your Old Testament, you may want to think about where this calendar came from. Um, If you know your Old Testament, you know that God was very concerned about time. And in particular, about setting certain times apart and designating them as holy times. There were times that were set apart for him, set apart for his purposes, set apart for his worship and the lives of the people of God in that era. And so the first pattern of marking and setting time apart is built into the very foundation of the created order, isn't it? God created in six days and then he rested on the Sabbath and the scripture says because he rested on the Sabbath, he hallowed the seventh day as the Sabbath and to hallow means to to make something holy to declare it holy, and that pattern of six days of work and one day of rest unto the Lord is still in effect, and it will be at least until the return of Christ and I happen to think that it will probably also extend into eternity uh, we 're not given a lot of specific information, but we do know that there was a Sabbath even in unfallen Eden, and it makes sense if if what God's going to do at the end is to do what he did at the beginning, only make it even better, that there would be a Sabbath at the end as well. And, and so it's not unreasonable to assume that in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be preoccupied with whatever tasks are associated with our sphere of authority for six days. And then on the seventh day, we will down tools And we will go up to the throne room of the Lamb with all the great company of heaven and worship him together and feast together. And as I said, we're not given many specifics, but such an arrangement wouldn't be surprising. Because that's how God does things. But then in the life of Israel, God commanded the observance of certain days and certain seasons, didn't he? And once again, if you know your Old Testament, these words will not be totally unfamiliar to you. Or if you have any Jewish friends, you might have picked up these phrases. You've had, for instance, Yom Kippur the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice for the sins of Israel. That takes place in September, usually September-October time frame. The Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, and so its dates don't always line up. And so things move around like they do with Easter, because Easter is also figured based on a lunar calendar. And so you also had then Passover, Passover, which is one we're probably very familiar with. That's the the commemoration of the Exodus when the Jews fled from Egypt. But you had other ones that are mentioned in the New Testament, but we probably don't know very much about them. We had one called Shavuot, or the the Festival of Weeks, which celebrates the harvest of the winter wheat. And it's also called Pentecost. Pentecost is the Greek word for 50. And uh, it took place 50 days after the Passover, so that's another mobile holiday for them. But 50 days after the Passover, they would gather in Jerusalem and they would celebrate Pentecost by sacrificing two loaves of bread that were made with the first fruits of the winter wheat crop. And the Jews would come from all the far-flung places uh, that where they had lived, and they would gather at Jerusalem to worship and to celebrate. And of course, if you know your New Testament, it was at that particular holiday, that Jewish holiday, that, uh, that the Spirit of God fell in power on the disciples, and they spoke in tongues and preached the gospel to these people these Jewish people from all over the known world. Why were they there? Well, they were there because they were gathered at the temple to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Shavuot. In the fall, you would have another harvest celebration, which was similar. It was the autumn harvest, and it was called the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. In Hebrew, it's called Sukkot. And the Jews would build little huts. They still do it today. Sometimes you go, I'm told, you go to to places in New York City where it's a heavily Jewish neighborhood, and you will see in the backyards they've built these little huts out of palm branches and other things like that. And they will actually live in those little huts for about a week. And, And this is to remind them about the desert wanderings after they left Egypt when they didn't live in permanent dwellings. And this feast begins on the fifth day after Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And then there was another feast that the Jews were obligated to make a a festival or a a pilgrimage and a sacrifice to Jerusalem. Uh, It's it's called Shemini, Azaret, which is the completion of the cycle of the reading of the Torah. We find these things in Leviticus 23, if you're interested in reading about what God commanded and how he commanded them. And then, of course, there were other holidays that were added to the Jewish calendar later than the time of Moses and the time of the Exodus. Uh, One uh, that some of you might know of is a a festival called Purim. And it began after the time of the exile in Babylon. And it it was begun to commemorate how Queen Esther was used by God to foil the plot of an evil man named Haman who was out to perform basically an ethnic cleansing of all the Jews who lived in exile in Persia. And God used Esther to stop him. And to this day, when Jews celebrate Purim, they write Haman's name on the bottom of their shoes, and then they go to synagogue, and they have special points in the service where they like stamp and rub their feet on the ground, and you can't leave, apparently, until you've erased Haman's name off of the bottom of your shoes. Now, how is that for uh, stick in your eye, right? It's like, hey, we're still remembering this guy 2,000 years later, 2,500 years later, and we're writing his name on the bottom of our shoes and then rubbing it off to remind us how God had rubbed him out and recognized uh, and, and saved us. And then a little bit later, during the time, just before the time of Jesus, came a festival called Hanukkah. There was a pagan king who was, uh, who was uh, in charge of the area around Israel, and he was a descendant of one of Alexander the Great's generals, a man named Seleucus. And um, the Jews, beginning with Alexander, had been under the control of either Alexander or his generals since basically the 300 years before Christ. And Alexander had permitted them to keep their religion and to keep their cultural ways as long as they didn't rebel against him, and they did that. He gave them a special dispensation. And, and Alexander's general who took over, he followed that, that, that same uh, practice. Now, the reason why that's important is because one of the things that Alexander did was make every culture he conquered learn Greek and start worshiping the Greek gods. It was a, something called Hellenization. And that was important because that's how we were able to get our New Testament in Greek and then spread the gospel around the whole known world. It's because everybody spoke Greek. And the reason why everybody spoke Greek was because of Alexander the Great. And so God engineered that so that the, the gospel could be spread 300 years after Alexander died in order for the gospel to go forth. But, but part of the, the bad side about that is when they, decide, when they conquered you, they decided you got a new language and a new religion and your culture was just going to be erased and replaced. Well, they didn't do that to the Jews until this one crazy descendant of Alexander's general a man named Antiochus. And he decided that the Jews should become Greek and they should worship the Greek gods. And they went, you're not going to do that to us, are you? And he went, yeah, I am. And he went in and he sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem. And he sprinkled pig's blood like the high priest would have sprinkled the blood of the lamb. He sprinkled pig's blood all over the temple into the Holy of Holies and everything else. And then in the Holy of Holies, he erected a statue of Zeus. And then he made the priests sit down and eat pork chops and defiled them. And then he started using defiled oil in, the, in that menorah, that lampstand of Israel, in order just to stick his thumb in their eyes. Well, this created a backlash, as you can imagine. And the Jews rebelled under the leadership of a man named Judas Maccabeus, Judas the Hammer. And the Jews were able to throw them out. And then they went to cleanse the temple and reinstitute the worship of God. And when they get in there, they were able to find one little store of oil that hadn't been defiled with pig lard and, but it was only one day's worth and they put it in the lampstand and they lit the lamps and they prayed it was going to be eight days before they could get more oil and God miraculously according to the story kept that lamp burning for eight days on one day's worth of oil and that's where we get the, the eight nights of Hanukkah it's a celebration of what God did in the rededication of the temple, just a few hundred years before Jesus was born. Now, if you think about all of those Jewish festivals and all of those observances, they all centered around two main themes. Mourning and repentance for sin and gratitude and celebration for what God has done. And then to add a third thing in there, they also were we set around the cycle of the public reading of God's word. So in the synagogue, when Jesus completes the temptation in the wilderness, and he goes into his hometown, and he goes into his home synagogue, his home church, to read, and he stands up, and he reads at the place appointed. And that was because there was a calendar. And in one year, you read through the whole of the Old Testament in the public worship of the people of God. And Jesus gets up and he reads that famous passage in Isaiah. And he says, these things are fulfilled today in your hearing. He didn't just pick his favorite Bible verse. That was the reading that was scheduled for that day. So you had had time set apart for repentance. You had time set apart for celebration and for thanksgiving. And you had time set apart for the reading, the public reading of God's word. So that anybody who wanted to could come and hear the word of God read. Even in the the Jewish synagogues among the pagans in Rome, a pagan could come and say, I want to hear about this God of Israel. He could come and he could sit, and he was welcome to come and sit and listen to the scriptures be read so that he could hear about the God of Israel. Well, God has left us free since the coming of Christ from any sort of commands about how we order our times as a Christian people other than this cycle of six days of work and one day of Sabbath. We're bound by the moral law of God to observe that one. That's in the Ten Commandments. But, but we've got freedom. And very early on, the church began to exercise that freedom. They began to order their common life around the public reading of God's word in a systematic way. And, and the gathered people could then come and hear the word of God for themselves. And so, for instance, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. And this was apart from the the preaching and teaching on a specific text of Scripture. You were just to read the Word of God. and And in traditional Reformed churches, very often you will have this cycle still in effect. And you will have an Old Testament reading, you will have a psalm, you will have a New Testament gospel reading and you will have an epistle or a letter and you will have a reading from each one of those four portions of scripture and if you stick around long enough, in a year you will go through the whole of the Bible and that's just integrated into worship. But that has fallen, uh, that has fallen away as people are less and less uh, willing to spend time in worship on a Sunday morning. They want it over in 59 minutes and 59 seconds and so they've stopped doing that. But it's a great practice, and it's been the practice since the time of the Jews, so that the people of God hear the Word of God, not just their favorite portions of the Word of God, not just what they have time for, not just what they happen to just open up one day when they were sitting next to their armchair. And so the people of God hear the Word of God. So, there, so that was part of the, of the public worship in, the, in New Testament post-New Testament times. They also began to set aside days and seasons around two themes. Mourning and repentance of sin and gratitude and celebration for what God had done in Christ. In other words, absent from any specific command of God, they simply continued the Jewish pattern. Only now, instead of temple worship and sacrifice, it was gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ his message and the events of his life and of course the first celebration then that the early church instituted on a regular basis was was Easter they didn't call it Easter then they called it Pascha I actually don't like the word Easter it's actually the name of a pagan goddess Uh, in the Old Testament she was known as Asherah or Ashtoreth In Germany, she was known as Esther. She was a fertility goddess. And somehow in the murky depths of Western church history, that got associated with the resurrection of Christ. So I don't like the word Easter. I use it sometimes when I have to. But but in Greek, it's called Pascha, which is the same word for Passover. And it's the celebration, of course, of the resurrection. And this was celebrated from earliest times, probably from apostolic times. Now, in the ancient world, when somebody said, hey, I think I want to become a Christian, they weren't just automatically baptized and and told to pray a prayer and then brought into the membership of the church. You see, the farther away from Jerusalem and the less Jewish the early church became, the more of a disconnect there was between the lives of the followers of Christ and the lives and the thinking of their pagan neighbors who didn't know about the God of the Old Testament and the stories of his dealings with Israel. And so the early church very quickly developed a training program for new Christians. It was called the Catechumenate. And it lasted between one and three years. And during that time, it was a time of intensive preparation, both mentally and spiritually. They were taught the scriptures. They were taught how to pray. They they were taught how to fast and how to seek after God and holiness. It was a time of supervised spiritual formation in community that prepared people to live and die as though Christ is who he really said he is. And this catechumenate served three great purposes. First of all, it let people who thought they wanted to become Christians It let them know what they were getting themselves into because following Jesus was a whole life commitment, and they could lose their lives. They probably would lose family and wealth simply by naming the name of Jesus and becoming a Christian. And they wanted them to be prepared, they wanted them to go into the Christian life, eyes wide open. This is what it's going to cost you. Are you ready for that? Are you willing to pay that price? So that was one thing that they were taught. Second of all, it allowed the church to weed out people who were not genuine disciples and who weren't interested in becoming genuine disciples. And it provided a thorough education for the mind and the formation of life in patterns and habits of godliness. So after you completed this one to three year catechumenate, you were baptized. And generally you were baptized on Easter Day at sunrise. And it was, a, it was an amazing and it was a glorious event. I, I showed you pictures not long ago of the, the baptistry in the, in the basement of that ancient church in Milan where St. Augustine was baptized, and the person to be baptized was stripped naked, and they stood before the baptismal pool, and they were asked, do you renounce Satan and all of his ways? Do you renounce the world and the flesh? And they knew what they were renouncing was the family religion, the family business, perhaps, the family relationships, their good name among their friends and neighbors, they knew they could die for doing so. And so there they are, stark naked at dawn on Easter. And they say, yes, I renounce all these things. And they were brought down into that pool and they were baptized. And then when they came out, they were given a white robe and a new name. And they were brought into the life of the church. And in the context of that Easter worship on that first on that Easter morning, they, they would have the Lord's Supper. They would have communion for the first time. And that's what it took to be a Christian in the ancient world. Well, you want to get ready for something like that, right? It's important. You want to be extra ready. And so, the, so they're, they're developed over time, this, this special period of fasting and, and preparation for baptism. And it and it, they, they kind of picked 40 days. Um, this, this was in part modeled on the idea that Jesus fasted for 40 days in the wilderness before he began his public ministry. And they said, well, you know, if, if Jesus needed to fast to, to get ready for his public life, maybe we're not as strong as we think we are. Maybe it'd be a good deal if we fasted in preparation for this bringing into the public life of, ourselves into the public life as a person of God. And then there were also those people who had, who had sinned grievously, and as a, as a response to their sin, the church had suspended them from communion, from the, from the Lord's table, and they were, um, they were uh, not allowed to participate fully in the worship. And if they repented, they were brought back into the life of the people of God. And they said, what what we want you to do, though, is we want you to have a special 40-day period of mourning for your sin. They very often would put on sackcloth and ashes, which is a practice that Jesus himself mentions in several places in the New Testament. And so they would join the catechumenates in their time of fasting and repentance and prayer. And then on Easter morning, as the catechumenates were brought in in for their first communion, they also were brought in and restored to the fellowship of the Lord's table. And then everybody else said, you know, that seems really meaningful. Maybe we should all just fast and mourn for our sin for 40 days before we come to the Easter celebration and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that then became the 40 days of Lent. Well, it wasn't long before Christians also wanted to celebrate the birth of Christ, not just his death and resurrection. Now, it was easy to figure out when Christ died because it was during the Passover time and the Jews were still keeping the Passover every year and they knew how the Old Testament had told them to figure the time of the Passover. So Easter was pretty easy to nail down. But nobody knew when Jesus was born. The scriptures don't say. And so the church thought to itself, when would be a good time to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, the light of the world? Well, the church knew from Genesis 1-14 that God had ordered the motions of the sun and the moon and the stars in order for human beings to be able to keep track of time. In other words, the heavens were mankind's first calendar. That's what the Bible says. It says in Genesis 3-14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And they knew that the darkest day of the year was the winter solstice. We're coming up on it. Have you noticed how freaking dark it is at 4 o'clock now, right? You look up and you look outside and you're like, it's dark. It's only 4 o'clock and it's dark. Yeah. And that's not just because of daylight savings time being inflicted on us. That's actually because the days are growing shorter because the planet wobbles and it's wobbling away from the sun in the northern hemisphere. And so that darkest day of the year is called the winter solstice. And that's today we mark that day as December 21st on our calendars. But in the old Roman calendar, it was December 25th. And after the solstice, there is more and more light each day. Now, uh, it's, it's kind of apparent here. We're pretty far north. But when you get farther north, the difference between the summer solstice in June And the winter solstice in December is very profound. Uh, And I can remember, you know, in Sturgis looking and the sun never got very high above the black hills and then it would go down and the days were short. And then you get to June and it was light until 930 at night and the birds are still going while you're trying to get the kids to bed. And, the, and, and so you had this, it, like I said, the farther north you go, the darker and the longer the darkness is. And they said to themselves, this is the perfect day to celebrate the birth of the light of the world. We're going to put this on the, on the winter solstice, and it's the longest, darkest day of the, uh, of the year. And then every day after that, light will become more and more prevalent, just like the world that Jesus came into bringing light to. And that's how we got our celebration of Christmas. And these early Christians then chose this darkest, shortest day of the deer to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Well, we don't really know when Advent began to be celebrated, but we find mention of it as a, an existing practice in the Council of Sargosa in 380 A.D. And so it comes from earlier than that, probably by quite a bit. But the purpose of Advent has always been for the people of God to prepare their hearts for Christmas. In ancient times, the focus of Advent was split between two themes. For the first two weeks, the people focused on the second coming of. On his return in glory, when he brings judgment upon the earth and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When he brings history to an end and there's a new heaven and a new earth and the dead in Christ shall rise and meet the Lord in the air and those who are left shall be transformed into spiritual bodies just like that. They said, you know, his first coming was cool. His second coming is going to be amazing. So we should spend the first two weeks of Advent thinking about that, getting ready for that, making sure our hearts are in a place that where if it happened tonight, we would be found like the wise virgins to be ready, to be walking closely with him. So they spent the first two weeks on the return of Christ, and then they spent the second two weeks on the first coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ. Now, I'd like to spend these four Sundays in Advent thinking about why these things are as they are and share them with you. And we're going to do that by taking a verse or a few words from a well-known Christmas carol each week and thinking together about what they mean. And then we'll close our worship together by singing that carol. This week is a little bit odd because of all this introductory and background information. I know uh, I've got so many things to balance here. I've got some people that are coming from a background uh, where they're like, I've never heard of this stuff before in my life. What is it? It seems weird. Why do you do it? And then I've got other people who come from a background where they've been raised doing this stuff and they've rejected that church and they say anything that even feels like that is yucky and I'm not sure I like it and I'm not sure it's okay to do. So, so, so I've, got to, I've got to pull both groups together and say, okay, let me at least make the case for this is why we do things the way that we do them. And then you can decide we don't want to bind up anybody's conscience. Like I said, you're free to order your life however you want, except six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall do no work. That, that one, you, that's not optional. Sorry, that's God, not Brian. But, I, but I'd, like to, I'd like to pull us all together And and today, just briefly, I want to look at the phrase, From Joy to the World, that is the title of our sermon today. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Now that, that phrase comes from the third stanza of the song, which reads, No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. As, far as the curse is found. What does that mean? Well, it's a reference to the fact that the world, and in particular humankind, are under a curse. They are under the curse of God Almighty. In response to the sin of our first parents, God pronounced a curse on them and upon the created order which they were made to rule and administer on God's behalf. And so you have never lived one moment that wasn't marked by that curse. You have never seen one thing in this world that was untouched by that curse. And what does this curse involve? Well, it involves bitter futility. It involves backbreaking labor simply to try to survive, both for man and for beast. It involves pain and agony and vulnerability. It involves sin and it involves sorrow and bitter tears. And most of all, it involves death. Death of the body and death of the soul. Think of everything that you hate about this present life. Think of the damage done by parents to their children, both intentional and unintentional. Think about all the lives that have been ruined by drugs and addiction, crime and violence, war Famine, disease, lies. Think of all the marriages that are breaking apart. Think about cancer and heart attacks and diabetes and nasty words. Think about rejection. One of the most painful and destructive things you can do to a person leaves an invisible wound that will kill eventually. Is just to be re- just. A, I reject you. You're rejected. You're not worthy of my company. You're not worthy of my fellowship. You're not worthy of my good thoughts. I reject you. Think about racism and other fondled hatreds. Think about people using Christ as a masquerade for their own wickedness. Think about abuse of authority. Think about all the times somebody didn't do their duty towards you out of laziness or inattention or cowardice. Think about the things that have been stolen from you, the theft of property, the theft of ideas, the theft of reputations. Think about all the pride, all the arrogance in the world. There is no country that you can flee to where this curse is not found. And probably even in a worse form than it's found here. We're actually pretty good shape. Even in Antarctica, we will find that both man and nature are still under a curse. In our society today, we are obsessed with figuring out which group or race of people are the bad people, because by definition, then that in other people's minds, that makes the the groups or races that aren't them, the good people. But we find, if we just look for just a half a second, that the curse is upon all people. White and black and brown are under a curse. Male and female, and whatever other of the 89 made-up genders you can come up with, all are under a curse. To be gay is to be under a curse. To be straight does not relieve you from the curse. You are still under a curse. Republicans are under a curse, and the Democrats all go, yeah! Democrats are under a curse, and the Republicans all go, yeah! It's just a curse for everybody. The very ground beneath our feet is under a curse. It produces thorns and thistles instead of food. The animals are under a curse. Now, I'm going to ask Nancy to cue up this video and not play it yet, but but nature is absolutely brutal. And, And I'm always amused by those who seek to justify some sinful behavior by pointing out that that certain animals act in the same way. And they'll say, "Well, well, it's natural. Therefore, it's okay to do. And I want to say to them, oh, so you want to draw your ethics from the animals, do you? Okay, well, animals kill for fun. Animals engage in cannibalism. Animals engage in infanticide and in gang rape. So I suppose that you're gonna be okay with those things then too, because the animals do them. It's natural. A couple of days ago, I ran across this amazing video clip of a snow leopard hunting a mountain sheep in the Himalayas in India. It's only about a minute long. Do we have it? All right, just, just watch this for a minute. This is amazing. So that last one there on the right, his name is Lunch. And the whole way down, that leopard's just gnawing on that stupid antelope or whatever it is. Isn't there an easier way to get your lunch? I mean, my goodness. The curse. That's the curse. You say, well, how come the curse is still here? Jesus lived and died and rose 2,000 years ago. and, And the curse rumbles on. I thought Jesus was supposed to fix all this. So, and, and it doesn't seem like anything has changed. Well, no, that's not exactly right. You, you see, with the first coming of Jesus, if I can mix my metaphors, Narnia is beginning to thaw and the witch's spell is beginning to break and it begins, the breaking of the curse begins with us, the people of God. One of the main themes of the New Testament concerns how Christians treat each other. And we find it in every New Testament author. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it. John talks about it. James talks about it. Peter talks about it. They all take up this theme extensively. For example, 1 Peter 1, verses 22 and 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. In other words, what Peter's saying here is Jesus has given you a new life. Uh, It's the eternal kind of life and it purifies your heart and it enables you to stop transmitting the curse. And the primary place where you must demonstrate that new heart is in the church among the brethren. All people are not our brothers and sisters. They're our neighbors, but our brothers and sisters are those who have also been adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ. So when the Bible talks about brothers or brothers and sisters, it's talking about Christians. And the church is where we're supposed to demonstrate this love. The church is what Jesus wants to hold up as an example and call the world's attention to so that unbelievers will be able to look at us and see what life is supposed to look like and how good it can be If Jesus comes into your life and transforms it, this is what Jesus means when he says, You are a city set on a hill. Everyone can see that city. You can't hide that city. And he says, Among my people, they shall love each other in such a way that everyone will look at that and go, That is amazing. And the early early pagans said exactly that. They looked at the early Christians and they said, We can't stand them. But behold, how they love each other. Understand clearly what I'm saying here. The Bible teaches that one of the main components of Christian witness is not how you treat the worldlings. It's how you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ. James puts it even more starkly, I'm sorry, John puts it even more starkly in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14. He says, we know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So according to the Apostle John, on the pages of Holy Scripture, the proper way to answer the question, how do I know I'm saved, is not, well, I prayed the sinner's prayer. It's not, well, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. It's not, well, I've been baptized. It's not, I know lots of doctrine, and doctrine's really important to me. It's not, I've memorized lots of Bible verses, and Bible verses are important to me. According to the Apostle John, the way to know if you are truly saved is to ask yourself the question, do I truly love my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I treating them In in a way that is congruent with love. Do I truly love my brothers and sisters in Christ? And if you don't, then you are not saved. That's what it says. You are not saved. Whoever doesn't love is still in darkness. You're one of those people that will come to Jesus on the last day with a list of things that you have done in his name, and he will say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. So the first place that Jesus reverses the curse is in the invisible parts of his people. It's in our minds. It's in our hearts. It's in our souls. It's in our relationships with each other. These parts of us, the parts of us that go to heaven when we die, are the first place where Jesus reverses the curse. And that was what his first coming came to accomplish and began to accomplish. That was what, in particular, his death and his resurrection began to accomplish. But he is not finished. Our invisible parts have been redeemed, but he has a plan. And his plan is for the redemption of our bodies. And that plan will not be put into effect until Christ's second coming. And Paul describes it, and he describes it gloriously, In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 35 through 58, listen to what Paul says, because it is quite amazing when you think about it. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans and another for animals and another for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars For star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body and it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are we who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, Something else is going to happen too. Christ is also going to restore the natural world. The trees of the field will clap their hands and lions will lay down with lambs instead of chasing them across mountains and both of them tumbling down together. C.S. Lewis, and with this I close, C.S. Lewis writes about this in his essay called, it was actually a sermon called The Grand Miracle. And with this I close. The story of the incarnation is the story of a descent and resurrection. When I say resurrection here, I am not referring simply to the first few hours or the first few weeks of the resurrection. I'm talking about this whole huge pattern of descent, down, down, and then up again. What we ordinarily call the resurrection being just, so to speak, the point at which it turns. Think what that descent is the coming down not only to into humanity but into those nine months which precede human birth in which they tell us we all recapitulate strange prehuman subhuman forms of life and going lower still into being a corpse a thing that if this ascending movement had not begun would presently have passed out of the organic altogether and have gone back and have gone back to inorganic as all corpses do One has a picture of something going right down and dredging the sea bottom. One has a picture of a strong man trying to lift a very big, complicated burden. He stoops down and gets himself right under it so that he himself disappears. And then he straightens his back and moves off with the whole thing swaying on his shoulders. Or else one has the picture of a diver stripping off garment after garment, making himself naked, then flashing for a moment in the air, and then down through the green and warm and sunlit water into the pitch black, cold, freezing water, down into the mud and slime, and then up again, his lungs almost bursting, back again to the green and warm and sunlit water, and then at last out into the sunshine, holding in his hand the dripping thing he went down to get. This thing is human nature. But associated with it, all nature, the new universe. That indeed is a point I cannot go into tonight because it would take a whole sermon, this connection between human nature and nature in general. It sounds startling, but I believe it can be fully justified. Your destiny isn't to sit on a cloud and play a harp as a disembodied spirit forever. Your destiny is to rule with Christ in a new heavens and a new earth. And this life, and prayer in particular, are given to you to train you to reign. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer.